I'm Zoe Bisbing, and this is the Full Bloom Podcast, where we're nurturing a more embodied and inclusive next generation. Today, we're connecting dots in the realms of health, nutrition research, and social justice with one of the most important voices to contribute to the Full Bloom Project to date, Dr. Lindo Bacon. Dr. Bacon is here to help us understand what lies beyond body positivity, how we can shape a culture of empathy, equity, and true belonging, and how we can more responsibly talk about health with young people in ways that honors the harsh realities of broken systems we live in and sees to it that young people never give up their power in pursuit of so-called health. Dr. Lindo Bacon, welcome. I thought about you a couple weeks ago when I was giving a student workshop about body positivity, inclusive health, and eating disorder prevention. Two middle school students bravely raised their hands. One said, I love what you're saying, and I'm really looking forward to being a grown-up because I think there will be a way for me to be body positive and accepting of myself when I'm an adult. But while I'm in middle school, it just does not feel like an option. She said her only option is to just hold her breath and survive, that kids are going to talk about you no matter what. And then her friend said, for kids our age, there are romantic experiences we need to be able to have. And it doesn't seem fair that you might have to miss out if you don't look the way guys want. She made the case for why adolescents need to pick between romantic experiences and authenticity. To both of these students, both incredibly brave and bright, there seemed to be one option. Do what you need to do to look the part. I thought about what you write, that it's a lot easier to be your authentic self when the world tells a story that your authentic self has value and how inauthenticity becomes a survival tactic. I tried to offer them hope, but I'm really curious to know what you would have said to these girls and anyone else listening who may be feeling similarly. Okay. Well, I'm not going to talk to them because kids scare me, but (laughs) I can talk to you about what this brings up to me, for me. First off, I have so much compassion for those girls. As you were asking the question, it brought me back to when they were my age and I felt the same thing. And all of us can relate to that. When you're a kid, you keep getting hit up with experiences where you feel like you don't fit in and you have to be someone different in order to get the love and appreciation and feel valued. Everybody feels that. She's not alone. And yes, there are people that fit in to the conventional standards better than others. But what we find is that Many of them still don't even have the confidence that they do. Or if they do, then it brings up other issues like they can't really feel valued for who they are because people are only seeing those superficial values. So anyway, let's get back to being in the room with the girls. I think one of the things that's really important to me is if I can feel what someone else is going through, It helps me to be able to relate to them and to respond in a way that is helpful. And I think that that is a huge challenge for us as professionals and for parents 
to actually feel somebody else's pain. Especially that, because it's not just your kid's pain, it's a global pain. So the first thing is that, it's that it's being in that space and acknowledging, of course you feel that way. You're going to because what you're saying is real. You get those messages from the outside world. And it's true that people are treated better when they do fit into all of those standards. And that's the harsh reality of life. And unfortunately, it's not something that changes when you get older. The scenarios change when you get older, but not that essential feeling. And so this is the perfect time to learn the skills to be able to manage that because those skills are skills you need to survive all throughout your life. So one of the biggest things that I can recommend to you is start talking to your friends because you're going to find that you're not alone. Everybody else is feeling this way. And what you're going to also find is that People want to break out of that. Like they recognize, we can all recognize that the problem is in the culture, not in our bodies. And yet, as much as we can intellectually recognize that, it doesn't lighten the feelings of wrongness and wanting to fit in. And not only is that real, right, but it's also very human. When you study people biologically, you learn that we all have a shame response that's built into us and that shame served a purpose, that feeling shame because you don't fit in at some point in history and at some points now too was really quite valuable because Let's say you did something to tempt that tiger to come, you know, you left food out. You made everybody vulnerable. (laughs) So making people feel bad when they don't pay attention to social etiquette actually served a community survival response. So it's very human to want to fit in because biologically we're set up that way. But the problem is that the cultural values that we're trying to measure up to don't make sense. And they leave out most of us, and they're painful. So the shame response we get is no longer helpful for us, but it just keeps us stuck in a world with really messed up values. So this is our opportunity right now to create community and space that's different. We can talk to our friends and love them through this pain. Instead of trying to make it go away, we can acknowledge it exists and we can be there with them. And the more that we do this, the more we create safe and sacred space for all of us. And we got it then. Right. So I think that the really big issue here is encouraging people to develop their intimacy with their friends and their their ability to talk about the hard stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like to 
try to make it cool to be real and to have pain. <laughs> it's like an alternate universe, but that would be really wonderful and authentic. Exactly, right. And then you can also learn about what's going on in that outside culture to give us all these messed up values. And you can learn things like there is $72 billion every year spent on the weight loss industry. I mean, that is a huge amount of money. So what that means is there are people out there that are benefiting from us feeling like we're too fat and there's something wrong with being fat. Yeah. That the more they feed us these messages, the more that industry gets sustained. And then that's not even including the beauty and the fashion industry that all, there's also tremendous money there. And all of that stuff thrives on our insecurity and feeling bad about ourselves. Right. So I think the next step is to help kids get angry. Yes. Yeah. I think when this girl said this to me, I probably could have validated her pain better. But I think I said, isn't that effed up? <laughs> and she was like, yes. And I mean, I liked her response. It's almost like maybe we need to do a better job as grownups, like naming that for kids. Isn't this a problem? Yeah. And so the more we name it and talk about it, we validate the fact that we're not the problem, like that the idea is not to change us to adapt to a messed up culture. The idea is to change the culture so that it includes and appreciates us. Yeah. And we can extend this beyond weight, you know, racism, it's the same thing. You know, I mean, it manifests in different ways, but... We give value to white bodies over people of color also. So I think that we can engage kids' sense of outrage at injustice mm -hmm. and that that's really valuable because that is the skill that they need to kind of fight back in the world. And the better they learn this right now, the easier their lives are going to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for them on an individual level, but then also on the community level. I mean, I think that's what I appreciate so much about the ethos of the body positive movement, though it's been co-opted and it's confusing to people when it's not being appropriated. But this idea that it can be both incredibly important for the community, right, to sort of lift others up but in doing so, there seems to be this byproduct of self-protection, too, that you can increase your own well-being in concerning yourself with others' well-being and safety and inclusion in that way. Right. And I think, too, that one of the ways that I learned self-compassion, because self-compassion was really difficult for me. And what I realized was it was really easy for me to show compassion for somebody else. You know, like I can recognize when a microaggression happens to somebody else, like maybe they're the target of racism and I can have compassion for the situation that they're in. And yet I couldn't give that to myself. And sometimes it's really valuable to just notice that and to recognize that you deserve that just as much as everybody else does. Mm -hmm. So if you practice being kind to other people and you see how good that feels, it 
allows you to develop your skills to just be kind to yourself too. So all of this stuff happens simultaneously and you don't do this stuff alone. Mm-mm. No, you definitely don't. I want to shift gears, although it's all it's all related, but to this, all the work that you've done around health and nutrition and in your book, Radical Belonging, I love how you bust a lot of myths, particularly about diabetes and general nutrition. And part of why I want to hover on this for a moment is anytime I speak to parents or school professionals or kids for that matter about more, let's call it food positivity or an including like a different approach to nutrition or thinking about nutrition with a critical eye and an understanding of kind of the roots of it all. There's this reaction like, but what about diabetes? Like diabetes seems to be this like shorthand for lifestyle illness that you have control over based on whether or not you eat a certain way. And it's always far too loaded a question and topic to really cover in like a 75-minute workshop. But because I have you and you and you write so clearly and importantly about this particular piece of nutrition myth, let's say, I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about some of those important myths to bust and why you write that nutrition's role in good health is wildly exaggerated and misunderstood. Sure. So yes, let's start from looking at the vantage point of diabetes, because I think, as you're mentioning, it is really a great example of what I want to get across here, because it's probably one of the more extreme examples where people believe that diet and weight play a huge role. So one of the things that blew me away when I first started to study diabetes was looking at the research that showed that diabetes incidence tracks really well with socioeconomic status. It's not just socioeconomic status, but the more marginalized people are, the higher their risk of diabetes. And that's mind-blowing because it can be the explanation for why we see that people of color tend to die younger and get disease earlier than white people. Same thing when you compare people across economic classes, when you compare people who who are transgender to people who are cisgender. When you separate out almost every marginalized status, you see a difference in diabetes levels. So right there, that is showing us that there's something more going on than what you eat. Of course, you could make the argument, though, that maybe people who are less privileged, have poorer diets. So scientists have looked at all of this. And the more we track all of this, what we find is that in general, and this is going beyond diabetes, this is going to all the the diseases that we call the lifestyle diseases, it's now well accepted among public health professionals that all of the lifestyle behaviors combined contribute less than 25% to overall health outcomes. And the largest thing that contributes to overall health outcomes, like whether or not someone gets diabetes or heart disease, is this factor that we call the social determinants of health. 
And we're in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic right now. And boy, are we seeing that clearly, right? We're seeing how marginalized groups are the ones that are hit the hardest. And it's not just because of what we eat. We're able to look at all of the things that are toxic in our lives when we don't have access to power and we don't have resources and we have a lot more stress. There was one really fascinating research study that I looked at in diabetes where they found a group of people that had type 2 diabetes and they wanted to see if they could help people to decrease their symptoms of diabetes and maybe even get rid of it. And they did this among people who were of lower socioeconomic status. And the only intervention they did was they gave them housing vouchers so that they could move into much nicer places and not have to spend so much of their money on housing and now had more money that they could spend on other aspects of their lives. And it was amazing to see how it appeared that some people were reversing their diabetes. Everybody was managing their diabetes much better. Their HbA1c levels were, were going way down. It was amazing just looking at that. So it is very clear that there is a lot more that's going on in diabetes and all of the other illnesses that we blame on lifestyle and nutrition than we've been led to believe. And it's so clear when we look at the research. In a way, I hear that and I'm like, duh. Like, that sounds so obvious. <laughs> like, on some level, the more dignity that people just experience on a daily basis, the more able they are to, like, dedicate internal resources to things like taking care of themselves or nourishing their bodies in ways that feel good and promote well-being. And yet it's so not obvious. Like when people talk about diabetes, you never hear even that expression, social determinants of health. You just don't hear it in the mainstream or when you see an ad for diabetes. You don't see any recognition. And it's part of what bothers me so much about, like we were talking at the beginning, how kind of siloed all of your work and sort of the kind of health at every size work is. And then over here, you have this sort of mainstream medical, you know, or even nutrition, for example, that like permeates social media. And I mean, I guess I'm personally obsessed with bridging, but it's basic what you're saying, that you have to think more holistically. How can we rework basic information, <laughs> like especially for young people who are in schools, who get health classes, who get sort of minimal but impactful lessons about nutrition and disease and things of that sort. And I, I want just for a moment for us to imagine that we're doing like a curriculum review of a middle school science class. And let's say they have a unit on health, right? So that they're maybe going to talk about nutrition and they're going to talk about kind of middle school science-y stuff. And I want to ask you, like, as you reflect on your research and your own lived experience and certainly your own experience as a student consuming science curriculums as a tween or a teen, if you were looking at this, what would you be crossing out and what would you be adding so that our kids are essentially growing up on the other side of the radical reform that you feel nutrition needs? Sure. And 
I should say that I, I think you're aware of this. I have three graduate degrees in health-related fields. So I've been taught the basics of health again and again from a multidisciplinary perspective, you know, in, in all these different fields. And what I realized over time is that the most important thing that I needed to get the most out of my education was critical thinking skills, that it wasn't any of the specifics of any of the programs that has trained me to be able to support people in good health, that learning the difference between a carbohydrate and protein was not nearly as valuable as being able to criticize the research that tries to identify what kind of carbohydrates are better for your health. Mm -hmm. And I talked earlier about how there are industries that benefit off of our self-hatred. And when you get to the field of nutrition, that's also a huge industry that is benefiting off of trying to control us and making this about individual choices. And as a culture, if we want to figure out the best way to lower rates of diabetes, rather than telling individuals to stop eating sugar, if we raised the minimum wage, that would have a much more profound impact. And the research is really clear about that. And what happens in every field is they keep on a bring the attention back to the individual, an individual change, what's wrong with you, and divert attention to the system's problems. So that's where we need to be working, is changing things systemically and helping people to think critically about that, rather than continuing to internalize this idea that I can control my health because we don't have nearly the power that we'd like to believe to control our health. No matter how much we exercise and eat our fruits and veggies, people will still get sick and it might delay that a little bit, but it's not going to have the dramatic impact that we've been taught. And we really need to challenge that. Yeah, that individualistic approach, especially as we teach kids, it's not going to make meaningful change in the world. And I love the inspiration that you're you're giving to help young people get angry, <laughs> you know, to like channel that, you know, maybe adolescent angst into doing better, demanding more, not just for themselves, but like for others and sort of repair broken systems. So when we think about like a curriculum, I wonder, I don't want to assume anything, but most health curriculums are probably not dripping with maybe critical thinking skills are baked in, but certainly not calling attention to how broken systems are or the social determinants of health, let's say. They very well may focus more on, like you were saying, a carbohydrate and a protein. What percentage, like what ratio would you want to go for? Yeah. Okay. Well, first off, I taught nutrition on a college level for maybe a dozen years or so. So I have a lot of experience in trying to help students understand, you know, what's valuable in yeah. nutrition. And 
what I found was it was really hard to convince people that their keto diet wasn't going to save them or, you know, whatever it was that they were clinging to at the moment, because everybody's got their specific idea Mm. of the diet that's perfect. And it's almost like religion when you try to challenge that. So it felt somewhat useless to attack each individual one when it was so much easier to look at things globally. So, for example, we can then start to think about how do we do the research to figure out what constitutes a healthy diet? Mm-hmm. And we can start to look at some of the research that's out there. And then things come up when we, when we examine research. So, for example, we can then think about, well, how do we fund all of this research? And we realize that, well, the people that have an investment in the outcome of the research are really going to want to be able to prove that their food is good. So the pomegranate industry wants to come up with the antioxidants that are in pomegranates so that we're all told these are healthy and we should eat them. And there's nobody that's benefiting from not giving us that message. So what we see is it's going to be impossible to get good research because of how money is always going to influence our outcomes. Mm -hmm. So it makes it clear that current ideas about nutrition are just really based so much on who benefits financially. And again, what that means is individual change because then individuals have to buy their way into health. Yeah. So what do we want the future minds to be focusing on, right? We don't want to just market uphill battles. (laughs) Where is the prospect of change and what can people aspire to do? Well, one of the things that's really important is then to figure out How do I make good nutrition choices if I can't trust what people have told me? Mm. And this is the most important message to give kids then is, but you can trust yourself. Mm -hmm. Our bodies give us an incredible information to help us figure out what helps us to feel good. And there are basic messages, things like hunger and fullness tell us how much to eat in a way that counting calories never can. Mm -hmm. So the idea is to hand back trust to kids. And if they want to learn about what foods help them to feel good, that the more that they can get to know their bodies and trust them, rather than all of these outside ideas, the better choices they're going to make. And let's come back to that issue about diabetes. People who are diabetic will find that when they eat foods that are high in fiber, it helps them to feel good. If they're testing their blood sugar, they'll find that it helps them to keep more steady blood sugar levels. Whereas when they eat foods that don't contain fiber, their blood sugar levels are more likely to soar. So they can get information from how they feel 
to help them to figure out the diet that's going to work best for their bodies. Yeah. So I want I want to tell kids, don't give up your power. Yeah, it's that power, those internal cues like that we're all born with and that we all get so profoundly disconnected from, but your hunger, your fullness, your feelings. I mean, as a therapist, I feel like that's what people come to me years later and they need support finding out what's happening inside of me. What am I actually feeling, those sensations? So any kind of nutrition component in a health unit, in a science class, for example, if we're going to talk about nutrition, we can't really talk about nutrition without talking about social determinants of health and also without talking about internal regulation, essentially intuitive eating. We can't have the nutrition conversation without that super micro internal stuff and the super macro social determinants of health. Right. And the great thing about that is that if we teach nutrition from this perspective, kids will end up eating a more nutritious diet. Right. If you eat nothing but sugar, you're going to feel it in your energy levels. You're not going to feel good. Right. But you have to give kids the chance to make that mistake, to try it out so that they can learn for themselves. So if you want to get kids to a lower sugar diet or to eating more fiber, that's the way to do it. You know, you're going to be constipated if you don't eat fiber. Right, right. And so if you can help to instill the message in kids that, they know how to learn nutrition without the adults jumping in. Yeah. You'll get them to the place to eat the nutritious foods that you want them to be eating. Yeah. Especially for adolescents that they need as much autonomy as they possibly can get. So this idea that someone might rip off their internal <laughs> capacity to feel or sense something internally. I, I want us to all find creative ways to kind of make that a thing that we talk about as opposed to something that only like choice mental health professionals and people that study things like nutrition um, in the way that you have know. Because I feel like it's not widely celebrated and broadcast, this idea of internal wisdom. Do you agree that it's sort of underrepresented? Oh, completely. And I was just reflecting today on a really painful time in my life. It was when I was teaching nutrition and I would teach people introductory nutrition and then some of them would go on to schools where they were becoming registered dietitians. And if they took my nutrition course, they could then waive the requirement at the school for introductory nutrition. It counted towards their degree. Well, at least in the beginning when I was teaching, but Towards the end of my tenure, we got a letter from a school saying that they were going to no longer accept my nutrition course towards their nutrition degree. It was so threatening to them. And I like to imagine that what happened was my students were going in there with their critical thinking skills and they were telling their teachers, show me the data. Yeah. You know, back this up. And that's what was going on. So when you start to talk about these issues, you get siloed. It's way too threatening to so many people to even consider this. And 
my job was then threatened for speaking out on these issues. Yeah. So, of course, we're going to be scared to talk about them. And, of course, it's going to be hard to believe them because we're not even allowed to talk about them. Yeah. So it's radical. It's a little bit radical. And yet it's so hard for me to reconcile how radical this all is because it's all so basic and fundamental. And and it's supported so well by science. So I first did a research study, what, we're going back 20 years ago, where I was testing a health at every size program versus a conventional diet where people were told to eat the diet foods and to watch their calories. And what we found hands down was that the people in the Health at Every Size program, even though we weren't telling them what to eat, ended up eating more nutritiously and improving their health. Whereas on the diet program, there were some early improvements, but over time, those improvements were all lost. And that research wasn't an anomaly Since then, there have been hundreds of studies that have looked at that same issue, and they keep coming up with again and again that people who care less about their diet and instituting rules end up eating more nutritiously. Yeah. It's supported by the research. Yeah. There's so much fear that that lack of structure or like rules to follow will have this really adverse effect on health and on weight and on the confused causation there. And, and I, I mean, I get it, but I do think it just speaks to that lack of trust that we're all sort of conditioned to not have. And I'm encouraged by when I do share your work and, you know, others that have done work around health at every size in the communities that I speak to in schools and with my own patients, everybody's relieved. There's struggle. There's a little hesitation and kind of a disbelief. But there's this like relief that maybe they're okay. Like maybe if they just put their effort towards rebuilding trust with themselves or preserving the trust in their kids, right? That the kids are kind of already born with that 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 work seems almost more doable than sort of how complicated, you know, being healthy is like drummed up to be. Really well said. Yes. I'm mindful of time, but I can't let you go without asking you. At the end of each episode, we just ask if each parent listening was going to just do one thing today to help their child fully bloom, what's that one thing you would really want to invite each and every parent to do? I'm hesitating because I'm trying to figure out a short way to get this across. Oh, uh, here it is. I can do it in two words. That what they need to offer up is unconditional love. Mm -hmm. And let me actually just explain that a little bit because I just think it's so important to understand this concept. Another topic that you wanted to get into with me, but we haven't had time to do it, was you had asked whether we could also speak about gender. Yes. So let me use that in my example, my closing example here. When I was a kid, I never felt like I was a girl. And my parents 
always wanted me to dress like a girl and act like a girl. And they felt ashamed at what they called my tomboyishness, which, well, we won't get into all my problems with that word. But they wanted me to act more like a girl. And to survive in my family, I tried to. And it wasn't just in my family, but in school too. That the more I acted like the girls and I could fit in better. And it made my life a lot easier in so many ways. But what I realized was it forced me into this inauthentic self. I was play acting what I knew people expected of me to give me the love and appreciation that I felt that I wanted. But the thing is, it never really worked. I didn't feel loved and appreciated. I just felt like I was surviving. And it was faux appreciation. And it was only later in life that I realized that the more I lived my authentic gender, then I could actually get the love and appreciation that I always wanted. And so this is what I want of parents. It's to let their kids be who they are. Support them in that. Let them make their mistakes. Love them anyway. Just let them shine. Don't try to get them to fit into your idea of what you think they should be. And your kids will end up so much better for it. I love that. And I'm glad you you shared that personal example and how loving our children as they are, letting our children tell us who they are is so critical to being able to bloom in full. And it's hard for parents. I mean, a completely little nothing example, but yesterday I was, I have a a one-year-old daughter and I have two older boys and I was putting a bow in my one-year-old's hair because I love a bow. It's so cute and it's up my alley. It's like I loved wearing them and and I have this little girl to put this bow on and she was not having it. She was pulling it off and and it was this really interesting moment where I thought, I want her to wear this bow. It's fulfilling something for me. And I didn't give myself a hard time. You know, I just noticed that. Like, she's not asking for it. And she's a human being. (laughs) And like, I'm going to take it off because I got my moment where I got to see it. And like, she's an individual. She's not my doll. And I just slowed it down and just had that kind of moment. But I think what I was sitting with was how much satisfaction it was bringing me to put that bow on her. And it was not bringing her any satisfaction. She was telling me, get this off me. And so I did, but not without being a little bummed. And it was interesting because then later that day, I took my kids to the swimming pool and my boys are of a certain age where now they have to go in the men's room. And I was like, they were only there with me and my mom. And so to send them alone and I felt, and I just thought to myself, whoa, like we don't have a choice but to participate in this very gender binary world. And maybe another conversation or if you have a minute, I think that this starts so young in terms of even just the lack of language and access. These are the two options, you know? And so how do you 
whether it's about a little bow like that or using dressing rooms, right, with small children, like how do you participate in the world, you know, as it is while also challenging it and teaching your kids to challenge it, you know? Sure. Uh, Okay, here's an example. My bat mitzvah, which is a Jewish girl's coming-of-age party, my parents wanted me to wear a dress. And I wanted to wear the suit that my brother wore to his bar mitzvah. Now, here's what my parents could have said to me. Instead of shaming me for wanting to wear it, what they could have done was they could have said, hey, it's conventional in this world that some people are considered girls, this is what they're supposed to wear. Some people are considered boys, this is what they're supposed to wear. And when you step out of that, you might get teased. Um, People might not treat you very well. So we want you to know that there's a world out there that might not be so kind to you when you step out of your gender role. And let's work together then to figure out what is it that you want to wear to your bat mitzvah that's going to help you to feel good. We'll support you whatever choice you make. And I'm sure that we could have come up with a great compromise. And I think back to when I was an adult and my parents had a party and it was a theme party where you had to dress like 1940s or so. So you can imagine how gendered everybody was doing. And my mom's suggestion to me at that point was we could get you some Rosie the Riveter overalls, Mm. right? Because, you know, like it was less gendered. Yeah. So my mom evolved over time to recognize that I wasn't going to wear a dress that wasn't me and that... I found my way in the world, and she wants to support me in it. And I just thought that that was so beautiful. And this is what I want, that we could just challenge ourselves to keep re-looking at the rules we've been taught about how we're supposed to behave and how we're teaching our kids to behave and to recognize, like, it's going to come up all the time that we're going to be enforcing that gender binary. And the more we're cognizant of it, the more we can catch ourselves and leave it open so that our kids are developing to be who they are and who they're meant to be. Yeah, to almost teach critical thinking skills such that kids can unconditionally love their authentic selves. And that's hard to do in this world we live in, but but not impossible is what I'm hearing you exactly. say. And, and if my parents gave me the recognition that, yes, it's harder to live in this world when you don't fit in in certain ways, and we can all develop the skills to manage that rather than giving up our power and conforming. Yeah, it's like full circle with the girls in the workshop. Thank you so much. This was just a pleasure to get to meet you in this way. And I know everyone listening will be thinking deeply. That was a lot of fun. And I think we covered a lot of really important issues. So thank you. Those were really wonderful questions to get a good conversation going. 
So that's today's show. I'll be back the last Wednesday of next month with a new episode. Until then, I hope you'll catch up on the first 64 episodes of the Full Bloom podcast or follow on Instagram at Full Bloom Project and tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom.